Hello and welcome to the Politics of Peterborough, the podcast where we chat to the people who have been elected to make decisions about our city and those who try to influence them. I'm your host, Dave Adcock, and once again this month we've split the conversation into two parts. Before we get to part one, apologies for the fact we didn't have an episode last month. We were due to meet with Peterborough MP Paul Bristow on the 9th of September, and obviously the world received the news on the 8th that the Queen had passed, so we had to postpone. We're working on trying to get another date in the diary with Paul, and once we do, I'll let you know. If you have any questions you'd like us to put to future guests or suggestions for who we should try and have on the podcast, then send a tweet using the hashtag politicspeterborough or send us an email to politics.peterborough at hotmail.com. On with the show. Our guest for this episode has owned and run Creative Audio Production, a specialist in radio and audio production for nearly 40 years. He was first elected to Peterborough City Council as a member for Bretton North uh, in 2006 and has represented West Ward since 2014, being elected to the council on six occasions. First appointed to the cabinet in 2011, in 2021 he became leader of the Peterborough Conservative Party and council leader. He was appointed Deputy Mayor of the Cambridgeshire and Peterborough Combined Authority by new Mayor uh, Dr Nick Johnson, although was removed from that role in May this year, a decision he described as divisive and disgraceful. Councillor Wayne Fitzgerald, welcome to the politics of Peterborough. And welcome from me also. Good to be here. So how did you get into politics in the first place? What kind of drove you to become a politician? It's one of those things where you think to yourself, should I do it? Should I not do it? So a friend of a friend, that's how it always happens generally, because it's not so easy to get candidates, but I didn't know that at the time. So a friend of a friend, and that friend turned out to be John Peach in the end, asked me back in 2006, would I consider standing for council in what was then thought to be a rock solid safe Labour seat, which was at the time North Breton. Uh, I think the councillor there had been there for 30 years, Harmish Lackenpool. I'm one of these people that when I put my mind to doing something, I I do it full on, full out. So I won, much to the surprise of everybody else. And then I managed then through, um, uh, I don't know whether it's good luck or hard work, uh, to get three Conservative councillors in North Breton at one point. And that only changed at the time uh, around the UKIP um kind of uprising shall we call it where everything went out the window and uh so yeah so breton um and today has three conservative councillors in the old boundaries although the boundaries have slightly changed so that's how i got into it and you kind of get a bit hooked after that because there's a sense of you've got to see things through and you want to you know not let people down so once you start on that journey i liken it to being on a on, on a wheel like the hamster and you can't get off that wheel really i suppose the only way is you know by losing an election and as you say uh, i didn't realize it's uh, that many times i've been elected since 2006 but time flies now as i say you've, you've been a councillor for 16 years do you still have the the same desire and drive as when you got elected or has that grown in the, the time that you've been a politician it has grown in terms of my experience and what i'm able to bring to the role what has changed is I'm getting older, of course. I'm 63 now. So 16 years ago, I was considerably younger. So the stamina that you need, I remember John Holditch's wife, Barbara, telling my wife, you'll soon know that he's got the job because it is a very challenging and time-consuming job, you know, when you're running anything. But the leader of the council, 
it is a multi-varied uh, position with with lots to do. So, yeah, I enjoy the job. It is challenging, and I don't acknowledge stress particularly well, although some people go, you know, it must be very stressful. I guess it must be, but I don't see it in myself, but I probably do suffer from it just like anybody else, but perhaps fail to recognise it. Have you ever had a desire to move into national politics, perhaps be the, the candidate for the general election? If I said no, that would probably be not entirely true. Um, although I'm the wrong side of 60, personally speaking, in the sense that I don't think that, um, although nobody would ever admit it, uh, there are plenty of people that have asked me to put my name forward in the past. Um, and um, I think probably 20 years ago, I, I might have been keener to pursue it. Uh, today, I'm not. Uh, you know, I'm I'm happy with my lot. Do you see a, an end point or are you just you happy to, to carry on? As, as I'm one of these people that works. I've worked all my life. And, you know, doing the job of council leader or being a councillor to me is a job. Just the same as the many other jobs I have uh, that I have to fit in around my time, as well as all my personal family commitments. Now, Shakespeare wrote, uneasy lies the head who wears the crown. Mm. You've been leader of the council for nearly 18 months now in an almost unprecedentedly challenging time with COVID and the ongoing financial uh, woes of the council. How well do you sleep at night? <laughs> Uh, well, strangely enough, I, I've, I've always been a night owl because if you know anything about my background, um, you know, some of the things I've been involved in. So I'm not an early riser. I don't like early mornings, you know, even though I've done uh, uh, when I was in uh, radio, of course, I, I used to do a breakfast show, um, uh, which are, you know, it's great. But, you know, I, preferably, I mean, I try to tell them, don't give me any meetings before 10 a.m. unless it's absolutely necessary. And I have to do them sometimes. So I sleep OK, you know, in the sense that and as you get older, you rely on less sleep. Um, so, you know, I can do six hours if needed. But in an ideal scenario, I like nine um, because it can be draining. I mean, the last two nights, for example, and my wife's quite surprised um, I, we've gone to bed together at the same time, and I think she quite likes it. I've told her not to get used to that. Um, so, yeah, we, we, I, I, I generally don't go to bed much before 1am, um, and most often I'm up by 8 and moving around and get myself ready for the day. But I can then work. You know, last night uh, we had a council meeting, which was relatively short compared with some, and I think it was over by about nine o'clock but that sometimes can go on till 10 or 11 so you have to you have to stay the course so and i'd been up since 7 a.m because uh both yesterday and the day before i'd gone to westminster so they're long days sometimes but i also try and keep fridays free despite me asking for that to be the case it never seems to work out obviously you're in a in the position of power now um, as a councillor and as the leader do you need to have incredibly thick skin to be able to hold that role? Incredibly thick skin. To be a politician or to be in any kind of public office, you can't be a shower, retiring water, wallflower type. Um, but I pride myself on being a northerner originally. So A, I have a sense of humour and, and, and uh, what would be described as banter to many. Some like that, some don't like that. It's a fairly straightforward direct approach. But I'd never mean anybody harm, and I never would deliberately offend anybody. But yes, you have to have a thick skin, and sometimes that can be mistaken for arrogance, um, and it's not. I, I take this view. People who take the trouble to get to know me and I get to know them, then that's fine. If they can't be bothered to do that, I'm not going to worry about it. Obviously, looking 
whenever there's a story about the city or about the council on the Peterborough Telegraph or on Twitter, Facebook, you know, there's inordinate amount of, of comments from people. Sometimes they get very personal. Do you pay attention to those or just best ignored? If I said I didn't, I would be lying. But then a few minutes later, no, I don't. So I learned very early on that actually the people that are described as keyboard warriors and the like, they're not friends of mine. They don't share the same political ideology as me. And more often than not, what is quite disturbing or, or rather worrying, and I, because I wish I could spend time with each and every one, is that if they were told the facts and the truth in terms of a straightforward manner, most would probably go, ah, I see, I get it. People are too quick to anonymously criticise me, and as you say, some of it is quite hurtful. My my uh, family see if I if I didn't have a thick skin, but by and large, I a don't respond. Which, if you look on my Twitter feed, it says that my councillor Twitter feed, and I have separate ones for me personally and for me as a councillor because I learned that lesson a long time ago as well. So I generally don't respond um, to. Uh, I'll use the word trolling because that's the that's the the term. I, I accept that people have a right to their opinion and they can share their opinion, but don't expect me to agree with it and don't expect me to respond. Um, so if you write to me in a civil manner, I don't do debate on social media. Um, it, my, uh, my tags say, you know, if you want a formal response, then email me. I'm happy to meet anybody at any time to discuss any issue. I try not to fall out with people. We may not agree. But, you know, I will have a, a, a sensible, civil uh, uh, discussion with anybody. But social media is, particularly Twitter, is the cesspit of, of you know, the world in terms of what goes on on there. And it's atrocious um, what people are allowed to say. But I would warn people um, increasingly because there are more and more prosecutions now for, uh, well, there was a, uh, a so-called journalist just recently prosecuted for haranguing Jeremy Vine and a number of other people for stalking through social media. And there are one or two people in the locale that sail very close to that uh, wind. And at one point, some of them are going to get burned by that. Is that something you would push if you felt they'd gone too far? Uh, there are occasions where I've already thought that. But then I think to myself, well, you know, who actually really cares? You know, they're not. They're not speaking for the masses. They're just a small vocal minority in many cases that have a personal extra a grind against me or the Conservative Party or my friend Paul Bristow or, you know, any of my colleagues. So you just have to kind of, I think it's better to rise above it if you can personally. And that's what I try to do now. So thinking about the state of national politics as it is at the moment, you were a vocal supporter of Liz Truss when mm. she was running to become the Conservative leader. A month in, it's been a rocky start, hasn't it? Well, OK, I was a vocal supporter of Boris Johnson. And personally speaking, I'd prefer Boris Johnson to still be there, as would a large number of Conservative Party voters, not just members, I'm talking about voters. Um, and I know whilst that was divisive, but look, we had, we had a choice. And it's, you know, it's A or B. So you've got to make a decision. Now, I, I have no problem with Rishi Sunak, okay? But you've got to make a decision based upon the facts you have to hand. Now, the facts I had to hand was, I know Liz Truss. Uh, not, you know, we're not best buddies, but 
we have socialized and uh you know i i know her she knows me when she sees me she knows who i am she knows my name um and you know which is quite heartening you know when you're when you're just a I'm just a minion in the uh, in the uh, in, in 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 the party. Although you know, I've been around long enough to know a few people, so um, it's a little unfair. And I, look, you asked me; it's not been the best start. No, of course it hasn't. I, I, you know, hold your hands up and go, yeah, it's not been the best start. But I think at the time she'd been in the job two weeks. If you t if you take out the two weeks for mourning, so at the time, you know, the uh, proverbial hit the fan, as it were, two weeks. And I think there was a sense of acceptance at party conference where I'm a regular attendee and I was, I was there and uh, said hello to her there as well, that they, they didn't quite get that right. And I, and I think they've accepted that. But there is this constant, you know, uh, whether it's from within or whether it's from the media about undermining government. They did the same with Boris Johnson. You know, they did the same with Tony Blair and Gordon Brown in there. It's not about the media just seem to think they it is their job. Fine. Hold to account. That is absolutely fine. But to undermine and destabilize government, I think we have gone a bit too far in this country. So, look, all I'm going to say on Liz Truss, she still has my support as 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 to uh, colleagues. And by the way, here in Peterborough, not everybody voted for Liz Truss in, in terms of party terms. I have colleagues in cabinet and my group and, you know, I'm also the chairman of the party, don't forget. So I, I have a wider view. Um, but we've got to give her a chance. And, um, you know, if you if this this to me is week four in reality, if you take the two weeks out for the death of the Queen. Um, and they need to fix things and restore confidence, particularly in the markets, and set out policies. Because I understand what they were trying to do, and, and, and nobody's arguing in terms of the financiers. There's some differences of opinion, but everybody knows where we're trying to go as a country and as a government. And we're in unprecedented times with the war in Ukraine, the energy crisis, the global cost of living crisis, you know, the, the, the interest rates were moving before the mini budget. And again, I think they've moved in America. It was either yesterday or today, but uh, I've been out the loop for 24 hours in terms of the news. So I've been around long enough to see this has happened before. And, you know, there was a crash in 1972 um, when when uh, there, there was a, a, a similar event. I was around in the 80s when interest rates were 18%. And I, I was a young man with a young family and had a mortgage to pay. So I've been there, done that, and things come in cycles. But what we must do, particularly, you know, from a, from a city council level, in terms of my world, is try to do all we can to help people through the crisis, just as we did when it was COVID. You know, the amount of stuff that went on here through COVID which again, unprecedented. So I'm a glass half full person. I think we will get through this set of crises and we will come out again at the other end and rebuild. Recent polls have put Labour anywhere between 20 and up to 33 points in the, the lead ahead of the Conservatives at this stage. Do you worry the impact that will have on next May's uh, elections, local elections, or do you think things will have calmed by then? The time is all, always a worry. So, yes, it's, un, again, remarkable that we're that far behind, but that will recover. It changes all the time. You know, you, you could say it was a reverse situation before the last election. So, yes, at the moment, and it's down to public opinion, the way the media is driving the, the agenda in terms of 
what's spoken about and the impression the public are left with. So in terms of the local elections, let me let me firstly say, if you are a conservative voter or a Labour voter, that's that's how you will vote. It's swing voters. So you could start with Paul Bristow's chances of being re-elected. You know, at the moment, everybody's saying, oh, you know, we'll be glad when you're out, you're not going to be re-elected. Well, that may be the case, but, you know, Paul is a very hard-working MP and nobody can deny that, whatever the politics are. As are all MPs, I believe, they, you know, they, regardless of a political party, as are all councillors on the whole. So next May's local elections, there is no, there's not going to be any earthquake in Peterborough. We will still be the largest party, is my prediction, whether we go up or whether we go down, in terms of, you know, couple of seats here, couple of seats there. The Labour Party are a long way off 31 seats, and there's no way they're going to make up that ground un un unless there's some kind of, you know, um, I don't know, moment in time where the world has stopped, you know, pigs fly backwards. So the other parties, the Liberal Democrats, have made some uh, ground, um, and 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 the Greens, but because they focus on specific areas, and we'll turn to uh, the matter of all-out elections, which you might raise, because it, that is relevant to this discussion as to why people vote the way they vote. So in terms of next May's elections, let me tell you one thing. So the Conservative Party in Peterborough, because we're a, we are a marginal seat, we work hard all year round. And it doesn't matter what party you represent, if you are a good councillor and you can cut through above party politics, you will get re-elected. So that's the trick of it. And I believe in my ward, I'm, I'm, I'm quite well known and I do a lot of work. I'm not on the ground as much as I'd like to be. Some people think I patrol the streets, you see, as that's the job of councillors, but we don't actually do that. But, you know, when people ring me or email me, I respond to all my residents' queries or we get things done, you know, whether it's getting a defibrillator put in, whether it's getting a, a you know, a speed limit reduced on, on Thought Road. Those are all the things that we do as councillors. We don't patrol. Um, so, if you are a good ward councillor and you're on your brief, then you should be able to withstand any tsunami of opposition from public opinion. Not not to the nth degree, because, so to answer your question, yes, it may have an impact, but not to the degree that people think it will in that there'll be no shake-ups, really. We may lose a seat or two, but we may gain a seat or two because we work hard. Yeah, I think when we um, had... Councillor Nawaz on this um, podcast, I spoke to him about May's elections and the fact that actually they were quite a difficult set of seats in that I think uh, the Conservatives are defending six seats, whereas Labour have eight, I think it is, that they're defending. Yeah, um, which, which, as you say, makes it incredibly difficult for them. They're, they're not going to have a majority. They may become the largest party and they may be able to form a coalition. Um, they could do that now, by the way. They could, and and we spoke about why that didn't happen. Well, I know why. Uh, <laughs> what what's your opinion on that? Why why did the the Conservatives end up still in power? Despite... Well, we are the largest party. We had uh, twenty nine seats, uh, uh, and one defected because um, he thought we were on the wrong path, quote unquote. But I have no idea what path we would be on. He's offered no suggestion as to what that might be. As far as I know, the people who are looking over my shoulder, telling, are telling me I'm doing a good job and we are on the right path. And we've rode back from the precipice of falling into the chasm of financial oblivion. 
We can talk again in more detail, but the fact of the matter is there are many things that influence an election. Where the seats are, who the candidates are, and how much effort you have to put in. As you say, the Labour Party may be defending more. All these things in the mix add up to what is possible. So for us, we do it all the time, all year round, campaigning. And my mantra is to win three more seats. Not because that solves my problems, by the way, but it gives a certainty of decision making. But I would still, and I said so last night, look to be collaborative with the opposition and listen. You know, whether whether we've got 31 seats or whether we stay as we are, whether we're up, whether we're down. Because I think we're in such a position where all parties must understand and recognise that we need to work together. Because we need to solve the problems of the City Council, otherwise we, we won't do so. So that's where I am in my head. Elections are going to be difficult, but they always are. So next year won't be any different. Now, one announcement that came from the recent mini fiscal event was the introduction of investment zones. Uh, now, Peterborough didn't appear on the initial list of 38 councils that had expressed an interest on the document that was released at the time. Mm. Um, but since then, MP Paul Bristow has stated that he and yourself are both in favour of setting one up locally. What do you think the benefits would be to Peterborough of having one? And can you promise that residents would be consulted on that decision if before it was implemented? not to steal any thunder from Paul Bristow, but it was me that prompted him. Um, on the basis, I was abroad, and when the announcement came out, and I messaged Paul and said, hey, what do you think about this? You know, uh, maybe, maybe we should have a go at attracting some investment. Look, let's be perfectly clear. We're looking at it, okay? So there's a long way from looking at it to doing it, because I think you're right to flag up some issues. You've got to understand the implications. But we mustn't just dismiss it out of hand without going, let's have a look at this. You know, what benefits will it bring to Peterborough? And will it be good for our economy, uh, it's the citizens of the city? Does it bring employment? Does it bring growth? Now, we're at, we're at an early stage at the moment. So I actioned the team here because the letter it did also then come to me and to the chief executive about expressions of interest. And that's where we're at. So look, there are all sorts of tax incentives. And if it can bring revenue that unlocks perhaps things that are being taken, let's let's take North Westgate as an example, right? It's a, it's a bit of land in multi-ownership. How do we bring that together and give people a reason to invest in there? Well, in an investment zone, maybe one of those reasons, because there will be tax benefits, there will be other benefits in terms of planning. Still, we've still got to have the right kind of planning, but it'll be but it'll be planning that perhaps is more light touch than somewhere else. We've also got you know middle home, we've got the embankment, we've got the station quarter. There's no end of places where we could say we need a bit of a you know a jump start with these areas. Look how long it took to do flat and keys. I don't know how, how long you've been around, but it took a long time, you know, and we, we had to drag that kicking and screaming with the opposition calling it a, a white elephant at the time, if I recall. But it's fantastic. It's super. There's just a few more little pieces to fall into place there. So let's look at investment zones. I, I think what we said before, we're, Peterborough's open for business. So let's look at all the opportunities that come our way. And if they're not right, for us, then let's not do them. And as to your point about consultation, we already consult with a wide range of stakeholders in terms of businesses, in terms of, you know, uh, education, um, you know, the 
the church even may, may, may have a view. All sorts of people get consulted. And if there was any formal consultation, the public also get to have a say on something. You know, if it's, a, if, I mean, if it's a planning thing, that, that's where you have your say, really, at planning. That's where it comes to. But you, you take a range of views about informing opinion as to how we take things forward in the city. So coming on to the council's financial position, are you able to share with us what the current level of debt is for the council? The debt position is, is significantly higher than we would like it to be. In terms of numbers, you know, they're, they're published already in, a, in, in, our, in our budget. And I think the, the, the numbers I've got are from March, which was just under 450 million. Yeah, but that's debt that's been built up over a long time that's provided infrastructure and all sorts of things. But if I was being uh, honest, it's higher than that we would like it to be. Therefore, we're not doing any more borrowing because borrowing has to be paid back from revenue. And revenue is the issue, not the borrowing. So we have unprecedented growth here in the city, largely down to the way that we've managed finances. But revenue now has declined so much in terms of government funding. And we've done well in other areas of funding. But that's not just us, by the way. That's a that's across the country. Our budget roughly is about 180 million plus the education and schools budget. But that has dwindled significantly by 55% in what we call the revenue support grant, which is the money we get directly from government. So the only way I see of us getting out of the, shall we say, debt challenge is growth. Whether that be through business rates, which we get to keep some of, I like to keep it all by the way, and indeed housing. But again, the right kind of housing that attracts large, larger um, council tax, which may attract um, a higher income earner or business people who then start companies and who then provide jobs for people. So it is all linked as a, as a circle. But at the same time, we have to balance that with people on low incomes who need affordable houses. So it's a real difficult challenge and one we're wrestling with at the moment. So our council finances are challenged. I think that's nothing new, that's well documented. And we are wrestling, as we did last year, I think we had a 27 million pound debt when I took over the council. And I closed that gap. In terms of the in-year, I would say we're half a million adrift. And that's not unusual, but that, that's just exactly completely normal, as you might expect the ebb and flow of, you know, finances during the year. But as we move forward, we were predicting last autumn, that we would have an opening deficit of about 5 million for the 23-24 year. Today, that can be 15 million because of inflation, rising costs, rising demand, any number of reasons that we can now put into the mix. So the pressure is on at the moment with our management team and, and the finance team and my cabinet is how do we now move forward into the new year and close this latest challenge. And I'm, I'm, I'm confident we will. And the other thing is, I think as the opposition have been exposed to more of the intricacies in the detail of what goes on into running the council, they have become more receptive to collaborative working. So where we were perhaps in the autumn of 21 is a different place where we are today in terms of the opposition. And I think they acknowledge that themselves. And I 
I've been trying my best to keep the plate spinning, balls juggling and everybody happy, which is difficult because you've got differing political views and you've got challenges where, you know, people don't want things to happen, the difficult decisions, which is what I said I would do. And why we didn't have intervention is because the uh, people doing the reviews of us had confidence in me as the new leader to make those difficult decisions and hold the line. And that's what I've been doing. Moira31 on Twitter has asked, has the city received full payment on the loan to Propertier Hotels Limit, uh, Limited for the construction of the Hilton Garden Hotel yet? No, and I'm glad we haven't. Do you know why? Well, there's this little thing called COVID came along, which said um, they would pay their money when the uh, property was complete, because bearing in mind, it's fully guaranteed against the the building, you know, and it's staged payments. So if it all went wrong, we would end up with a very nice hotel. However, they were due to pay us something like £600,000 and the completion was, let's say, six months ago without me looking it up. But now the completion, I believe, is January or February next year and it's now a million pounds. So we benefit an extra 400,000 from actually extending the loan, if you like. And the only reason it's extended because construction was halted uh, during a period of COVID and there was a materials shortage. So it slowed it down somewhat, which is perfectly understandable. And, uh, you know, we, we took the view, well, you know, I, I, what can we do? Everybody's in the same position. Uh, if you go outside now, you'll see it, you know, each day there's a bit more added and it's nearer completion. Speaking to the, uh, the operations manager of the actual hotel, he tells me they've got bookings for February already. So that's a positive thing. And people say, well, oh, why would you do this? We're not doing this. We, if they want to build a hotel, that's a matter for them. People question why is a hotel? Well, go and ask them. You don't think they'd be spending millions, do you, if they didn't think they could fill the rooms? So Peterborough's occupancy rate is actually quite staggering in terms of the people that come here, stay the night, whether it's a business or pleasure. Um, so anybody uh, coming here, you know, the, the Premier Inn, uh, you go past, it's always full, the old police station, you know. So there is demand for hotel accommodation in the city centre. And I'm glad. So no, it's not been paid. And I'm glad it's not been paid because we've got another £400,000, right? I guess the question is, is that something that the council should be getting involved in? Should they be acting as a bank to, to provide... It's an interesting question. I, 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 would we do it again? Probably not. And I'll tell you why. It's because the, um, not the legislation, but the guidance from uh, the Public Works Loan Board and government is that councils shouldn't be investing or, or, or um, and I don't think it's a risk, by the way, but shouldn't be investing in things like that. There are many councils that invested in shopping centres and all sorts of other things. And, you know, they've lost their shirt on them, basically. Um, but this is a fixed uh, uh, particular project. Um, they didn't need the money, by the way, but we thought at the end of the day, look, if we're making a million pounds, where does that million pounds go? It goes to support council services. And given our financial challenges, is it wrong of us to take the million pounds to put back into social care or into resurfacing roads or any number of other services that people constantly complain about that they're not done enough? So I'd rather take the million pounds and bearing in mind, you've, you've assessed the risk beforehand and, you know, a million pounds, we, we would have ended up with a 30 million pound hotel. I would have thought that was a good deal, if you see what I mean. So 
the risk involved, um, and I didn't, I, I didn't say, you know, it wasn't me that, but in principle, I think, I think it was a good deal. Would I do it again in the current situation? Probably not. Now, one of the services cut this year was the closure of St. George's hydrotherapy pool. Yeah. Um, was that a financial decision to try and balance the books or a political one because Heltwaite School might need the space to expand into? It's everything, really. Um, uh, the, the, the hydrotherapy pool has been on its last legs for uh, a number of years. This, this is the view of officers, professional people, whether they be the facilities people or, you know, and we've been keeping it going with a bit of sticky plaster and a bit of chewing gum. And, you know, the boilers were condemned some time ago, but some guy would come along, give it a bang with a hammer and, you know, <laughs> came back into life. But the, the facility wasn't closed by us this year. It was closed two years ago because of COVID. So two years on, hence, you know, the, the trying to resurrect it in any event was probably nigh on impossible, given what I just said to you about the pre-COVID state. But there was a deal in place to sell it to Ranji Mahamani. Well we'll, well, well, we'll come to that. My understanding is <clears throat> that there'd been some discussion with a local physio to buy the building. And, and we thought from a you know political point of view, great, marvellous, no longer our problem. Because it has been politically difficult, because on the one hand, you're dealing with the sensitivities of users who you've got to feel for. But on the other hand, it's not our responsibility to provide what is in essence a health treatment. I think most would agree with that. But because it had been kept going for so long, there was a, a continuing expectation that we should continue to um, keep it going and fund it, you know, whatever it was losing. Anyway, out of the blue uh, to us, and it came as a bit of a bolt out of the blue to us, we, we thought that was progressing and, and it would be a good thing for the administration because one, it, it helps the users and also devolves us of any responsibility as such. We had a new property lady come in and she said, this is not a good deal for the taxpayer. And we went, oh no. Now, unfortunately, that came out in such a way that even I didn't know it had come out. So the immediate question was, well, what about the man that was buying it? Well, he can't buy it because in overall terms, it didn't represent good value for the council and the taxpayer who we have a duty to. In addition, the school then said, well, actually, we could do with the space. That put us in a very difficult, difficult position. Now, you know, this is where we get into all this stuff about social media and everything else. You know, we've been called liars. We've been called all sorts of names. But unfortunately, these are the facts. Okay, these are the facts. So just like in any business deal, the man buying it was told he couldn't buy it. And that's that. We are, have then been scratching around trying to find alternative things. And I have to say, finally, we did. Not something that actually had not come up before. We discussed the Lyme Academy pool, which was then called Phoenix School, I believe, two years ago, which is a far superior venue in terms of, you know, it's got a good pool that works. It's not falling to bits, etc., etc. So sometimes, you know, it takes a little time to work through all this. And I'm, at the time we're speaking today, there is, there is a trial at Lyme Academy, due to start on the 31st of October, which is 
predominantly evenings and weekends. There was a survey went out recently among St George's. They have a database of four and a half thousand. But remarkably, only 51 people replied to that survey. So the, the level or strength of feeling behind the attachment to St George's or indeed hydrotherapy should, of course, be questioned that so few of the people that actually were polled about that responded. Now, look, to me, I'm happy people have got somewhere to go. I mean, within 45 minutes, there are two other places that people could go in, in terms of private sector, Bedford and Northampton. In addition, um, I'm aware that uh, a local GP is also building a, a, a facility which will include hydrotherapy and are planning applications in for that. We have nothing to do with that. We're not sponsoring it or anything else. It just happens to be that he told me about it and I went and had a chat with him. But since then, I'm not involved. You know, he's gone through the normal process. So there is hydrotherapy available for those that want it. Um, but it's not something the council should provide or indeed pay for. And we said time and time again that people should lobby through their MPs uh, and indeed the NHS, uh, which is now the, um, uh, was the CCG, of course, but they won't commission it. So it's been troublesome. It's been agony for many, I understand. And we have done all we can to try and move things on so that people have access. And the important thing I'm telling you today is they do have access and the trial begins on the 31st. Let's see how many take that up. Last week, we saw a report released on the Sustainable Future City Council strategy. Do you want to give us a, a gist of what's in that report and what it's going to mean for the, the future of the city? Um, well, firstly, let me say, originally, I, I was quite taken aback to read press reports quoting me uh, as the author of the report. And I had to point out that actually none of the things in there are quotes from me. I did not author the report. Um, and it's uh, Jens and Matt, officers within the council that have spent many weeks toiling over this um, issue. And again, through cross-party um, input, they've reached... Um, a position where we got to this report. But don't be, misunderstand, this is not something unusual. We have something called a corporate strategy. And this, in effect, is our updated corporate strategy, although it doesn't say it's called that. But that's what it is. So this replaces the, the strategy um, that we've always had, but it sets out um, in terms of holding up a mirror as to where we are today both in terms of uh, finances particularly, uh, which, which is very important, the way we deliver services, what we must focus on, and you'll see it's broken down into four themes for anybody that's, that, that's not read it. Uh, and it talks about how we might tackle the challenges going forward. But it uses very stark language which um, the author, if you meet the author, you will understand why. And whilst I, I don't necessarily sign up to uh, some of the language she's used, I, I can't ignore the sentiment in terms of, you know, it talks about austerity and it talks about challenges. Those things are true because we are in a, we'll come back to where we started, a very challenging financial position. And that is not going to go away in the short to medium term. Do you think you agree with the language where it says we've entered a period of permanent austerity? I wouldn't have used the language myself, 
but I've given the author free range in terms of it's the officer's report for the council. Um, I could nitpick it to death and, you know, uh, go, okay, well, let's tone that down a bit. But look, in reality, I want people to understand the seriousness of where we are. But conversely, it talks about the opportunities. So you've got to look at the upside as well as the downside. So yes, it's holding a mirror up to one's face about the challenges we face today, both in terms of uh, the money, the way we do things, the things we can't do, the things we must do. But it also talks about the opportunities ahead for the city, of which I never talk the city down. I think we're a great place to live. And I think the opportunities that we have before us are very much within our own destiny on how we manage those so and again i mentioned earlier about growth and and how we must view that it's not the silver bullet but it certainly will go a long way to helping shall we say start to replenish the coffers when we start talking about debt ratios that our debt ratio you know is considerably higher uh, than most local authorities in terms of the position of reserves. So we have a reserves position, let's say about 16% of uh, revenue, and it should be something like 46% is, is, is the average. We need to start balancing those things out. And we'll only do that because government aren't going to come along and give us more money. There's no point in thinking that that is going to be the case. Whoever is running this council, it ain't going to happen. So the way you've got to do it is you've got to grow business, you've got to grow the economy, and you've got to build more houses. Now, in the report, it's stated, quote, our city residents are at the bottom of too many league tables. People in the city die earlier, have poorer health and lower levels of education and skills than in most other cities. Too many are insufficiently skilled. Too many are in low paid work. Too many struggle to find suitable accommodation to live in, end quote. We've had a Conservative government for over a decade and the Conservatives have led the council for more than two decades. Does that not mean it's time for a change? fresh thinking, new ideas? You've got fresh thinking, new ideas in me. It's about leadership, okay? The, the, the fact of the matter is, what you're describing there is not new. Those things have been around in strategic joint needs assessments, health and well-being assessments, you know. I can tell you that if you live in certain wards and you're of a certain age and you have a certain demographic, you'll live 10 years less. But that was true 20 years ago. So the public health indicators here, the best place to live, by the way, in the county is Ely. The, this has all been out before. So there are indices across the country and Peterborough is not really that bad a place. I was at a presentation just, you know, two days ago and I've asked for it, you know, that, that puts in perspective, you know, places like Manchester and Hull and Liverpool and, you know, mainly Northwest cities where things are really bad in terms of your health outlook. So here, look, the fact is we have made some inroads into smoking cessation, which is one of the biggest killers, okay, in terms of public health indicators uh, in Peterborough. Heart disease, particularly in the Asian community, is prevalent, it's very high, but you can only eat an elephant one bite at a time. So there, there is progress being made, but challenging public health budgets, if we talk about that, we're underfunded in Cambridgeshire significantly with uh, when compared with the rest of the country. So that's one thing to ask a question about, but it's above me. But we continue to lobby through MPs and everybody else about public health funding. So those things are what it's referring to. In terms of uh, skills, 
there is a skills gap across Cambridgeshire. And, in, you know, you take Fenland as well, all parts here. So one of the things we're doing within the Combined Authority, for example, is we're trying to drive revenue and funding into Peterborough. And if you look at some of the recent meetings and reports, that money is coming. The uni also plays a part in that, in upskilling the local population. So all these things are in train. It's not that something is happening, but you're making comparisons against elsewhere. We're not the worst in the country, but we're not the best. So some in some league tables, and they're largely in health and housing. You know, but part of our success, for example, is put a squeeze on housing. Would you figure there are 325 asylum seekers in Peterborough? Asylum seekers. And that's fine. But where are they all living? Then if you add in 100 Syrian families and 100 Afghan families and everybody w wants to come and move to Peterborough, tell me why there's a squeeze in the housing market. But we're building lots of houses. We punch well above our weight, building 1,000, 1,200 houses. So it's not a simple thing. It's a complicated uh, cocktail of factors. See, in Cambridgeshire, there are no other asylum seekers. They're all here. Is that fair? So, you know, people need to step up to the plate across the county and take their fair share of responsibility, easing some of the pressure in Peterborough. And that's it for part one. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks to Councillor Fitzgerald for joining us. You can follow him on Twitter at CLLR Fitzgerald. Part two of our conversation will be released in your feeds on Friday, 21st of October, so make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at PoliticsPBORO. Please let us know your thoughts on the episode. If you have any suggestions as to who you'd like to hear on the show, or any questions you'd like us to put to our guests, you can email us at politics.peterborough@hotmail.com. This episode of Politics of Peterborough was created, hosted, recorded and edited by me. We'll see you next time.